Welcome to PharmaTalk Radio. I'm Kate Woda. I'm pleased today to share a session from the 2019 I.O. Combinations 360 event in which Dr. Danny Wells of the Parker Institute for Cancer Immunotherapy presented on his company's work in PD-1 resistance with a multi-omic approach. Enjoy the podcast. I'd been preparing the joke the entire day that I was in the worst spot because I'm blocking all of us from the beer, and of course, so. Um, so it's really exciting to be here. Um, it's been a really, really wonderful meeting. Um, really, really exciting. Um, so I'm Danny Wells. I'm from the Parker Institute for Cancer Immunotherapy. B- before diving into it, I know that we're, um, not everyone may know of who we are. <clears throat> so we are a nonprofit cancer immunotherapy research institute that was founded about three years three years ago by tech entrepreneur Sean Parker, the first president of Facebook, also known as Justin Timberlake in the movie, The Social Network. Um, We're based in San Francisco, California, and we work with a network of partner academic sites, including Stanford, UCSF, Sloan Kettering, Harvard, um, and others, um, to run trials in the immunotherapy space that that we think are important and hopefully um, will advance the science of immunotherapy as well. So I'll talk a little bit about that. So... This slide, I think, there's no, there's no need to show this crowd, but combinations are, are blowing up um, in immunotherapy. I think that this, uh, this image is from a paper in 2017. I went and updated these numbers actually right before I came on stage. And so there's actually now 3,700 IO drugs that are in development to more than 400 targets. There's 2,500 combo trials in PD-1 in development, um, and, then, and then another 2,000 um, combos to non-PD-1. So there's something like 5,000 combo, um, yeah, 5,000-ish combo trials um, that are happening right now. So many of these trials um, are kind of spaghetti against the wall. It's we have a particular uh, drug for some reason or the other, and we want to combine it with PD-1 or ipilimumab or something like that. So how do we move from, from thinking about spaghetti against the wall into rational combinations? And that's kind of what I want to talk about today. Um, so impediments to designing rational combinations, Drew gave a really nice summary of his thoughts, and um, I'll present some of ours. So the first is, is really something that I think has been talked about a lot, the lack of understanding of fundament, fundamental tumor immunobiology. Um, I would still say that the tumor microenvironment is dark matter. Um, we're working with technologies that are either kind of inferential, like RNA-seq, or they're, they're low-dimensional, like IHC. Um, and there's, there's literally dozens of cell types, and those cell types have um, microenvironment-specific phenotypes, and we really don't understand that at all. The second thing that I would say is, in lots of the trials um, we think about, we don't really expect failure, right? So we, we go into a trial, and we say, this is it. Um, and how do we plan for the next trial when we're designing the first one? And I'll talk about that. Um, and then on top of that, there's also really slow iteration cycles, right? So we do one trial, maybe that fails, and then we have to learn from that. But then we've already wasted you know, several years. And of course, you have to get the new IND filed on all of this. So, And finally, there's barriers to accessing the right molecules. So all the companies here are developing their own set of molecules, and they're usually pretty happy with their own pipelines. But it very well could be, and I'd probably bet that the best combinations are when we bring, um, bring molecules from different places together. Okay, so the approach that we take, so the first one is that um, we unite expertise, so we bring together leaders and we try to foster trust in a highly collaborative environment, and we've tried to deal with 
all the stuff that usually gets in the way in terms of legal agreements and IP, um, this is something we address we addressed very early. Um, second, we engage broadly. We're extremely collaborative. We work across many, many different organizations, and we try to make sure that every collaboration is a win-win. Um, second, we try to learn from every patient. And one of the things that I'll say is we have mandatory on-treatment biopsies for every patient on all of our trials, um, which, is, which is, yeah. And then on top of those biopsies, we do three, five, seven different assays. And then finally, um, we're moving into running only platform trials. And then with these platform trials, it, uh, that allows for rapid testing of different combinations and the ability to deploy new learnings in months and not years. Okay, here are our leaders. It's a lot of uh, familiar faces. Sean's in the middle um, from all of our different sites, and I won't name them all, but people who are familiar. Um, here are some of the companies we work with, and then there's, the, there's many who have been here. I just wanted to kind of highlight that this is maybe 10% of the total number of partners who we have, so we engage very, very broadly. I'll spend a little bit more time here. So for every sample that comes through from patients on our clinical trials, we have the Parker translational suite that we run. Um, this encompasses tumor normal whole exome sequencing with TCR, and now we're working with personalists for their integrated assay, which is amazing. Um, high dimensional multi-parameter imaging. We love MIBI, which is multiplex ion beam imaging from IonPath that allows you to get something like 25 to 40 different markers in an FFPE slide. Um, longitudinal cytof, cytokines, we do um, microbiome sequencing longitudinally for, for most patients, um, and then emerging technologies like single-cell RNA-seq. Um, that's coupled with kind of a best-in-class bioinformatic platform, and then people like me who, who sit at the end and try to analyze the data. Um, and then finally, um, platform trials, we really think that these enable kind of transformational efficiencies to, um, to the drug development process. They can reduce costs by up to 50%, and they're extremely adaptable. And I think that the latter point is probably the most important. If you do a 10-patient or 15-patient arm, and you see a stunning signal in the biology or in the clinic, you can very quickly expand that. And if it doesn't work, you can close it. Um, you can imagine iterating through three, four, or five different combos in the span of one or two years. Um, and learning from those combos. So maybe it's not the doublet you need, it's the triplet or the quadruplet. So what's an example of this? Um, at the very beginning, maybe six months into after launching, we started um, a trial in pancreatic cancer. So there's been a lot of talk of cold tumors. We focus almost predominantly on cold tumors with unmet medical need. And this is a quadruplet of gemcitabine, nab, paglitaxol, a CD40 agonist from the Pexogen, um, plus or minus nivolumab in, in pancreatic cancer that was previously untreated. Four arms, six patients, so a pretty small phase one. Um, and then the, you know, one thing I'll highlight here is, is that this combination had been studied very, very extensively by Bob Vonderheide at Penn just down the road, um, who really came to understand the mechanism of action of what this combo should be doing. So you start with chemotherapy, that induces immunogen, um, that induces cell death. You bring in CD40 to really prime the immune system and dendritic cells, and then finally you give PD-1 to unleash those T cells that have been primed with, with antigen. Um, and so, yeah, this is also a great example of a trial where we brought together two different pharma um, with four molecules. So we presented some early data from this um, at AACR earlier this year, and the results have been pretty, pretty, um, pretty exciting. So this is in pancreatic cancer, where there's essentially a 0% response rate. Maybe it's 3%. Um, these, these are tumors that are heavily myeloid infiltrated, or they're often immune deserts as well. And we're seeing something like a 40 to 50% response rate. Um, in 
in these patients. Um, lots of confirmed PRs. I think that this data is in, is in some sense jaw-dropping. So there's a phase two that's ongoing now. Oh, yep. There's a phase two that's ongoing, and then the immunoprofiling that I discussed um, is currently underway. And that's just kind of related to uh, getting all the samples in place. So, so kind of building on this of, of how we kind of think about working in, in cold and hard-to-treat tumors, um, I'll, I'll briefly mention our trial on CRPC, which is another trial. Um, it's another indication of a historically unmet medical need. Um, and here, this is going to be our first platform trial. So patients with CRPC, um, with CRPC will come in. They'll be screened. Um, and the oncologist will help place them onto an arm of the trial. There, are, there will be two arms when it opens, but we expect many more. They'll be treated, and we'll, we'll use that data to, to understand the arm and uh, to understand that particular arm. Um, and I'm, this trial, I think I'm really excited about because it really kind of captures all of the things that I introduced in terms of our approach to running rational combos for immunotherapy. Um, first, unite expertise. So there's a you know, very large drug selection committee that meets pretty regularly to really think about what are the most mechanistically, um, yeah, most rational and most, m most mechanistically well-reasoned combos that we could be considering. Um, all the combos are required to have a strong scientific hypothesis. So it's, we think that we're going to you know, use a vaccine to prime the immune response and then treat with something to get rid of a myeloid component that's there, or some, you know, something similar to that. Um, secondly, we already have, have deals in place from at least six different biotechs or biopharmas in place for this trial, and this is only for two or maybe three arms. Um, there's mandatory on-treatment biopsies now, um, and we're doing something like five plus assays per patient and time point. Maybe it's even more at this point. Um, and then lastly, this is a platform trial. So what's really, really exciting to me is that there's, there's substantial opportunity to take the biopsies, both pretreatment and on-treatment, and to learn from those and use that data analysis to inform new arms. Um, and this kind of leads into the second thing that I'll talk about, which is reverse translational medicine. Um, at the Parker Institute, which is really becoming the cornerstone of our approach. So what is reverse translational medicine? Um, this is a term that was coined by people at Genentech, including Matthew Albert, who may or may not be in the audience, but he had this great quote that's, that's still sitting on the Genentech webpage, even though he's moved on, using real-time human clinical data to directly inform new discoveries. So it's going from the bedside back to the bench instead of from the bench to the bedside. Um, at Parker, we say that, that reverse translational medicine is about using uh, translational data from clinical trials or other human studies um, to inform new scientific hypotheses. So biomarkers are great, and I'm all about biomarkers, but I really want to understand the fundamental biology of the particular disease we're talking about so we can design better, more mechanistic um, combination therapies. Um, why is this needed? Again, this is not something that I have to tell this audience, but for, for a very, very long time, TCGA has kind of been the resource that everyone goes to, but for IO, this is not enough. If you've tried to use the you know, mostly stage one and stage two TCGA data to, to infer immune content for, um, or, or to infer immune features from late stage cancer patients, you've probably suffered a good bit. Um, I certainly have. So, um, you know, and so nowadays, there's, there's these new high dimensional technologies, there's very specific indications like for Porter, it's metastatic CRPC who have failed off of two previous treatments since castration resistance, right? And then we have new treatments, thousands and thousands of new, of, or hundreds and hundreds of new agents and, and all the possible combos. So we really have to think about new data sets. 
So how do we think about this? Um, I wanted to walk through a couple of stories. And one of them, I think, will be of interest um, to this audience, and has come up a couple of times. How, how the, the core question that we were really interested in was, how does PD-1 work? How does it augment anti-tumor immunity? We know that it does, because there's patients who, who are cured of cancer when, with a, um, after, being treaty one, after being treated with PD-1. But how does it actually work? Um, there were early papers from Tony Rebus and colleagues that showed that having a CD8 high tumor is associated with response. And in that paper, this is actually in the abstract of the paper, they say, our findings indicate that tumor regression after PD-1 requires pre-existing CD8 T cells that are negatively regulated by PD-1 and PD-L1 mediated adaptive resistance. And so we, this, this to me really says, okay, PD-1 is working in the tumor microenvironment. It's getting there and it's disrupting that synapse, the PD-L1, PD-1 synapse, and it's allowing the, the T cells in the TME to be released. However, there's been a lot of really interesting, more recent data um, that's kind of come out. Um, and so, for example, in, in Nature a couple of years ago, they showed that most of the cells, there's this CD38 and CD101 um, positive population of T cells that are called terminally exhausted. So this was from Andrea Schittinger and colleagues at Memorial Sloan Kettering. And they showed that these cells um, cannot be reinvigorated by PD-1 therapy. And if you look at the TIL compartment, it's the blue flow plot, so to me, it looks like most of the T cells that they're seeing in the TME are of this phenotype which, these sh which they showed um, cannot be reinvigorated by PD-1. So what does that mean? On top of that, um, writing in Nature last year, uh, people from Fred Hutch, including Evan Newell's lab, showed that lots and lots of the T cells that are in the tumor are not specific for tumor antigens. They're actually specific for viral antigens. And this also, this also should take you back, because now we're thinking, OK, somehow this, this PD-1 molecule is reinvigorating T cells, which are in no way specific for the tumor. So that, that doesn't make any sense either. So as we kind of thought about this data, we said, OK, you know, is the mechanism of action of PD-1 really to reinvigorate CD8 till? So um, this is a kind of a similar question. Where do the immune cells that are responsible for PD-1-associated tumor killing originate? The experiment we did was actually in basal cell carcinoma, which is the most common kind of cancer, but it's not one that we think about much. Um, 11 patients with, with BCC who were treated with PD-1, we were very lucky, lucky to work with um, a set of clinicians at Stanford who were able to get us pre and post fresh biopsies, which are essentially are a reverse translational medicine scientist dream. Um, on these, we, we, we dissociated the cells and ran single cell RNA-seq um, and it was a very special kind of single-cell RNA-seq called 5-prime single-cell RNA-seq that lets us enrich for, both, for the TCR that's in every single cell. So on this data set, we, we ended up from these 11 biopsies with something like 50,000 unique T cells. Um, and for each of those, we were able to assign the, the T cell compartment of that cell as well as we were able to assign the TCR. Um, and so what was really exciting when we looked in this data, we saw that the population of tumor-specific clones using the same set of markers that had been identified by Evan Newell, um, CD8 positive, CD39 positive T cells, most of the cells that came in after PD-1 um, therapy had not been there. The clone of that T cell had not been there before treatment. So these are brand new clones. This is clonal remodeling of the tumor microenvironment post-PD-1. This was not true for any other T cell subset, for the naive, for the memory, what have you. 
Um, and this is just kind of reinforcing the point that there is profound de novo remodeling of the of the, the specific T cell clones that are present in the microenvironment after PD-1, which really suggests to us that the T cell response to checkpoint blockade relies on the expansion of a, dis a distinct T cell repertoire that is not present in the microenvironment before PD-1. So this to, this to us is kind of suggesting that we have to kind of think more broadly about how PD-1 is working, and it's not just operating um, within the tumor, the tumor microenvironment, but really in a more systemic sense. Okay, so as a more up-and-coming project, I talked about CRPC, um, and if you've read through the literature of CRPC and the translational data sets available there, one of the things you'll quickly realize is a lot of that data was kind of coming out of a targeted, um, a targeted therapy paradigm where they were really enriching for the tumor, and they often actually microdissected out the immune compartment, which makes someone like me very sad. Um, and so a lot of the data there makes it really, really hard to be able to analyze what are the immune cells actually present in CRPC? How can we actually use those to design more rational combinations? So um, this is kind of a new project, but we're, we've united with four oncologists to, um, who specialize in prostate cancer to really build the immune landscape of CRPC. So 50 CRPC samples, which is a surprising a number um, uh, that will be um, We'll be using MIBI and the, the digital spatial profiling assay from NanoString on. Um, these results will hopefully be, um, be leveraged to inform better combinations in the Porter trial. Um, and that's not all, so I wanted to kind of just highlight a couple of other programs. We have the, the so-called REVIVE program, which is trying to really look um, at primary resistance to PD-1 therapy using both retrospective and prospectively collected RNA-seq data. There's Tesla which if you're interested in neoantigens, I know that there's some people here. Um, I'm also part of Tesla as well, which is trying to understand neoantigens and the best, the best methods for identifying them. We have a, a very, very large interest in, um, in immune-related adverse events, especially endocrinopathies, and we're running a, a very large 1,500 patient prospectively collected cohort to understand where those come from. Um, and lastly, we have you know, several other uh, projects that I'm happy to discuss over a beer. Um, for looking at the myeloid compartment in GBM, the epigenetic regulation of T cells during PD-1 and others. Okay, so summary, um, I really want to, to encourage this audience to think of rational immunotherapy combinations as a unique paradigm within immunotherapy combinations. Not all combinations are rational, nor do they have to be. Um, and to the Parker Institute, that really requires a broad investment that that's focused on platform trials with on-treatment biopsies to learn from the drugs that you're testing with deep multi-amic profiling to really make sure you're understanding what's going on um, and having all the expertise united that really allows you to, to interpret that data. Um, that approach can be augmented by thinking in a reverse translational medicine framework um, and leveraging that to identify and understand key questions in tumor um, in tumor immunobiology. Um, so the goal of these programs is to really go beyond biomarkers and really begin to understand the core biology of the disease better um, with the hope that I think has been borne out already with some of the beautiful work presented by Genentech and others today that by so doing, we'll be able to design better combinations that help patients. So with that, um, I'd like to thank you and I'll take any questions. Great talk. Um, are there any questions for Danny? Okay. I have a question. Stay right there. Yep. I have a question about the uh, the Porter trial. So you talked about um, 
That's the CRPC trial, yep. right? You talked about the need to have some uh, scientific evidence before uh, agents are used in that. Mm -hmm. um, can you speak a little bit more about that? Because obviously prostate cancer, is, is there's really no scientific evidence for, for some of the immune or most of the immune agents that you probably want to consider. Yeah. So it's, it's hard. And I think right now, this is something that we've really been struggling with. So at the DSCs, we, we see all sorts of things. We see some mouse models, but we all, you know, uh, mouse data goes up and we say, oh, okay, we're trying to understand what this means. Um, there's some data that in, in cell therapy that we're starting to see kind of first in human and you see like PSA targeted, PSMA targeted cars and stuff. And then we say, okay, that's interesting. Can we imagine doing this in a larger thing? But um, yeah, right now it's a real issue and it's actually why we're doing the, the CRPC landscape because I, I think that we just didn't know enough and we were finding that, that the rationales, you know, could be stronger and we wanted to help make them stronger. Yeah. Okay, good. You don't mind? Yes, please. Thank you. Well, I'm not sure if, uh, uh, if you know, I, I introduced myself to you because mm -hmm. <laughs> like yeah. I talked about earlier. I'm Michelle Hongfan, one of the oncologists working for FDA, mm -hmm. CBER. It's a very exciting um, topic. My question is like, if you have, because from regulator perspective, mm -hmm. It's always a little bit skeptical, or I want to have a data to demonstrate. If you have such a combination, five, six, or seven, mm -hmm. and some of them are investiga investigatory or products you don't know, some of them may be approved mm -hmm. with maybe uh, indicated or non indicated, mm -hmm. then how to, at the end, if you want to go to regulatory pathway for licensure, how to separate or isolate the effect of each individual component. It's very challenging. I, yeah. I don't have a way. Yeah. I'm, I'm not sure if I have a wonderful answer for you. It's a, it's a really hard question. I mean, one thing I can say is with, with all of the work um, we do, the FDA is, has been a wonderful, wonderful partner um, in, in really helping us kind of figure out how we can get combinations for things like pancreatic cancer forward. And I think um, as we think about, you know, for the, for the PRINCE trial, if that phase two um, has a positive readout, there will be people thinking about registration and, and we'll have to have that conversation at that time. So, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Time for one more question. Ken. The, uh, the, the dual positive uh, CD38, CD101 mm -hmm. uh, till, it's hypothesized to be uh, this terminally differentiated uh, phenotype to be driven by an epigenetic mechanism. Mm -hmm. Just curious whether some of the data that you're gathering on your studies would help to elucidate the uh, potential mechanisms uh, by which that's, uh, that, that, that is exhaustive phenotype is, yeah. is happening. So. Yeah. Um, so I think right now we, we don't typically run epigenetic assays kind of all the time, but, but this is something that we're working with, with Stanford to do, um, trying to dive more deeply into the epigenetics of T cells, and it's a project I'm happy to talk about uh, later. And then we're, one of the parts of Parker that's, that's really, really nice is we don't have to do it all ourselves centrally, and so just today or, yeah, it, it was today or yesterday there were these papers published on the TOX gene in T cells, which is this master regulator of exhaustion. And one of those, actually, one came from Andrea's lab and one came from John Weary's lab, who are also Parker. And so I didn't even realize they were working on this stuff. And then I, well, of course, yeah. And I was like, oh, this is really interesting to us and everything. And so we're able to kind of um, start reaching out to them. And I think I sent John an email this afternoon being like, we should talk and everything. So, yeah. Okay.
I hope you enjoyed that podcast from the 2019 IO Combinations 360 Conference. For more information, visit iocombinations360.com.